Welcome to the new podcast, Leading by History, where we seek to take our listeners on a journey through history and educational leadership, changing our world and society one story at a time. Silas Chandler was born in 1838 on the Chandler Plantation in Virginia. He was moved with the family to Mississippi near the towns of Palo Alto around the age of two. Early on, he was trained as a carpenter, and around 1860, he met and married Lucy Garvin, even though marriages between enslaved people weren't recognized by Mississippi law. At the outset of the American Civil War, the White Chandler family had 36 enslaved people living on their plantation. Silas was sent to serve Sergeant Andrew Chandler as he was enrolled in a company with the Mississippi Confederates that later became part of the 44th Mississippi Infantry. It is believed that Silas saved money from doing odd jobs in order to buy his freedom. Yet his manumission was most likely illegal under Mississippi law. And some believe that the money that he gave for his freedom was taken and his freedom never received. A famous picture has been going around the internet for several years from 1861 when Andrew Chandler and Silas were photographed together and wearing Confederate uniforms. Both men held Bowie knives and Silas held a rifle that was laid across both of their laps. Andrew was holding another pistol and a third pistol was tucked into his belt. Many believe now that the weapons in the photograph were most likely props. Silas's service to Andrew during the war would have been most likely as a body servant or what has later been known as a camp slave. The fact that he would have fought in the Civil War is now being discredited by the research that is being done today. Silas Chandler is a foundation of discussion for many who argue about the existence of black Confederates and black Confederate soldiers. On today's episode of Leading by History, we'll be addressing this purported belief head on and seeking to prove whether or not it's fact or fiction. You don't want to miss this week's Leading by History. Well, welcome back to our latest episode of Leading by History. I'm here today with uh, Kevin Levin, who is um, the author of a new and interesting book where he is beginning a search for the Black Confederates. And so he's going to be with us today and tell us a little bit about his book and about um, his research and what he's been doing. And we're going to have that conversation today on Leading by History. So, Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. Great to be here. All right. So first, uh, I want you to just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background. How did you get involved in this research? And, and why is this a passion of yours? Yeah. Um, so my background is in, in history. Um, you know, I, I've got a passion for specifically the history of the Civil War and Reconstruction. So over the last 15 years, I've done a good, a good bit of, of research and, and writing. Um, but, you know, at, at my heart, at the heart of things, I am a history teacher. So I've taught 
um, you know, history on the high school and college level, mainly, mainly American history with, a, again, a concentration in the Civil War. I've taught in Alabama. I taught in Charlottesville, Virginia for 11 years. And uh, for the last couple of years, I've taught full time and part time um, here in Boston. Um, but so I sort of wear a number of different hats. So, I've, again, the research, the teaching, and then over the last couple of years, especially since 2015 and the events in Charleston, South Carolina, I've done a lot of work with history teachers on how to think about and teach uh, the debate over civil wars, specifically Confederate monuments. So I jump around to any number of things, but um, they all seem to concentrate around around the history of, a, of the American Civil War. Um, within that, uh, that interest, I'm, I'm really fascinated with questions of memory. I'm fascinated by you know, questions about how Americans have chosen to remember and um, and often forget certain elements and often mythologize certain elements of their past. And the Civil War is certainly ready-made for that. And I guess for that reason, uh, the Black Confederate topic, uh, you know, was was really the perfect one for me to, to latch on to because, you know, it allows me to sort of focus on the history of the Confederacy and the war, the memory of it. But also education. You know, why do people why why do people continue uh, in 2019 to fall victim to this myth? And so that's sort of that's my main focus. So I don't know whether you consider yourself a Twitter historian, <laughs> but <laughs> um, but I'll say that a lot of people talk about uh, your your Twitter page and your feed mm. that go out, and there's a lot of uh, interesting debate. And uh, the, the bulk of it seems to stem around this this idea there were African Americans or, or black people who were fighting for the South, for the Confederacy, on behalf of their cause. And right. so you receive a whole lot of, uh, of feedback on that. I, yeah. I want to approach that a little differently. What mm -hmm. is your definition of a black Confederate? And does this differ from the definition of a black Confederate soldier? Yeah, well, the, yeah, I mean, it's a great question. The, the reference to a black Confederate is, is a misnomer. Um, you know, if you go back and look at the, the actual uh, record from the war between 1861 and 60, 1865, you'll be hard pressed to ever find a reference to a black Confederate or a colored Confederate. Uh, that's, a, that's a very recent uh, sort of terminology. Uh, during this, the actual Civil War, African-Americans um, were enslaved uh, in the Confederacy. And, and from the very beginning of the war, the Confederate government mobilized tens of thousands of enslaved people uh, to help with various aspects of the war effort. So you would have found African-Americans enslaved, um, enslaved black people, you know, constructing earthworks, uh, repairing and extending rail lines. Uh, doing anything that would free up as many white people as possible to carry a rifle in the actual army. Within the Confederate armies, you would have also found thousands of impressed slaves, again, doing any number of, of jobs, teamsters, working in hospitals, um, again, anything that would free up as many white, whites as possible to, to actually fight. Uh, this was a white man's war for the Confederacy. They were fighting for the preservation of slavery. Um, in addition to impressed slaves, you would have also had thousands of uh, what would have been referred to as body servants or what I call camp slaves. Uh, and these would have been uh, slaves brought by usually Confederate officers from the slaveholding class into the army as their personal servants. 
But it's not until the last few weeks of the war in March of 1865 uh, that the Confederate government, you know, passed legislation to begin the process of recruiting slaves as soldiers. And this followed a very divisive, emotional debate about whether this was the right thing to do, given uh, the goals of the Confederacy to begin with. Um, and so, you know, they recruited maybe 50 in the Richmond area. They, there's no evidence they saw the battlefield before the end of the war in the spring of 1865. And even for decades after the war, uh, former Confederates and white Southerners generally who, you know, who commemorated the lost cause, um, they didn't refer to black Confederates. They referred to their loyal slaves uh, after the war. Um, they were in, not in any way confused about the status of, of black people in the Confederacy during the war. It's only in the 1970s that this changes. And I detail this, you know, in my book that, uh, you know, as the memory of the war begins to, e to evolve and, and really take seriously issues of emancipation, the role of the United States color troops, uh, do you find people who are um, feeling defensive and as a result of that, you know, starting to look for their own uh, black Confederate soldiers to counter uh, this shifting memory of the war. But it's a, it's a very recent uh, myth, very recent narrative. Uh, it has really no resonance in the war in the decades following the war. So would those body servants or camp slaves, would they have been considered black Confederates, even if not soldiers? Well, I guess it depends what you mean by black Confederate. And that's the problem here, because the, the terminology itself is incredibly confusing. It, it doesn't, I think the biggest problem with it is that it, it fails to um, explicitly acknowledge their legal status. And that is, I think, the mm. purpose of the terminology itself, to, to confuse mm. people, right? Uh, to sort of blur the lines between the loyal soldier, someone who quote unquote served the Confederacy, as opposed to someone who was enslaved. And I think, again, uh, you know, actual real Confederates were never confused about the status of enslaved people, of black people generally during the war. Uh, this, again, is a problem that that we have today. Um, and I, again, the reason is because, you know, members of Confederate heritage organizations like the Sons of Confederate Veterans and United Daughters of the Confederacy, they want to be able to claim uh, that African-Americans fought for the Confederacy so they don't have to apologize for continuing to support what many people believe, rightly so, uh, that this was an immoral cause. Mm. That's a good response. And that that's really meaty. I like that. Uh, I think mm -hmm. that, you know, the, the listener is going to be able to run that back and, and hear your response there again, because I think therein is the answer that, that many are looking for when it comes to why this terminology um, is used again and again. And I think it's a little slick, yeah. if you will, to to say, well, you know, there were black Confederates, knowing that it conjures up in the imagination Confederate soldiers, right? That's right. Um, That's right. And, and, then, and then thereby getting someone to, to take that assumption. Um, That's right. In, what, in fact, what, one, one, example of, one example of that is what, is what the Sons of Confederate Veterans do uh, today, which is, and this is over the last few decades, what they will do is they will find these stories of body servants and they will find a way to, to rewrite the narrative 
uh, again, to confuse that or blur the distinction between soldier and slave. And one way they do this is by dedicating new headstones for these people. And the headstones are typically military style. And sometimes they will even have a military style funeral uh, at the grave site when they dedicate the new gravestone. And that, again, you know, that gets spread uh, on the Internet through newspaper coverage. And again, most people don't really question anything they're reading online. And that's the other part of the problem we have here. So that's one of the ways in which this narrative gets spread. The Internet, mm. the big way, I should say. Yes, that's right. And, and you know, it's going to be important for people to, to go back and check one of our earlier shows when we interviewed Dr. Michael Brown, where he talks about pseudo-scholarship and false yeah. scholarship and, and how we can point out uh, when, when we see it, because a lot of people will think because they type in black Confederate soldier in the internet, some stuff comes up. Um, and they say, oh, well, there it is. But you have to have a critical analysis of the text to be able to you're, see whether or not it, it's a bona fide piece of information or body no, of information. You're, abso you're, you're absolutely right. It, it is a crucial point. It is, uh, it is absolutely uh, essential that in, you know, from middle school onward, perhaps earlier, uh, that we are teaching our students how to both, you know, search for and assess information online. And that's not being done. And, right. you know, the results are very clear. In fact, in Virginia in 2009, 2010, a textbook was, uh, was issued to fourth graders. Um, and, you know, luckily a historian at William and Mary, uh, who had a child in the fourth grade decided to peruse through the mm -hmm. section on the civil war. And she came across right. a reference to thousands of, uh, of black people fighting with Stonewall Jackson in the Shenandoah Valley in 1862. And when she was asked where she found this information, you know, you can obviously, you know, you can take it from there. Uh, the internet did a search <laughs> and came across websites from the Sons of Confederate Veterans. So it, it is a huge problem that is not being addressed, um, you know, in our school systems. That is correct. That is correct. So this myth of the black Confederate soldier, what exactly is the myth? Bear down on what exactly the myth is yeah. and then and, and where exactly it, it, it comes from. You, yeah. you, you alluded to it a little bit, but I want you to yeah. just go a little bit deeper for that. Yeah, I mean, very simply, the, the myth is, and I, I apologize uh, for being vague, but you know, this, is, this is how it's usually presented, that anywhere between 500 and 100,000 uh, black people fought as soldiers in the Confederate Army between 1861 and 1865. They were loyal to uh, the Confederacy. They, they, <laughs> they were an integral part of the Confederate war effort, not simply as slaves, but as bona fide uh, soldiers. And mm -hmm. you know, that, that's just pretty much what it is. Um, it, it doesn't get any more complicated than that. And as I suggested mm -hmm. a few minutes ago, its origins are very recent. Uh, as far as I can tell, um, the first references to it uh, come, in the, come in the mid to late 1970s. Uh, in fact, you know, it, it actually follows the, uh, the success of the television miniseries Roots, which aired in 1977. Mm. And you begin to see Confederate, sons of Confederate veteran uh, leadership talking about the danger of that miniseries because it was the first it was the first program um, that attracted a wide audience throughout the country, uh, you know, over the course of a few nights and introduced Americans to a 
you know, a, a pretty dark view of American slavery. I mean, for, throughout much of the 20th century, you know, for much of, of the United States of, of, of America, strictly white Americans, um, you know, their understanding of slavery was, you know, something you'd find in, um, in Gone with the Wind. Uh, peaceful, <laughs> they remain loyal to their masters, and, and Roots undercuts that. And again, I think what you find in these um, Confederate heritage organizations is they see this as part of a much larger threat. Museums are beginning to focus on slavery and emancipation. Um, National Park Service sites are beginning to acknowledge the role of the United States color troops. Um, the literature, the scholarly literature, probably most important, is now much more focused uh, on you know, the importance of emancipation, slavery, and again, USCTs. And, I, and again, I think that that makes uh, some people in these Confederate groups, heritage groups, feeling defensive, that they're going to somehow need to balance things out. Um, you have your United States color troops. We also had our black Confederate soldiers. Um, at first, the SCV and UDC, you know, what they're able to produce is confined mainly to their magazines and a small sort of number of, of books published by small vanity presses. But it's really the internet that helps this take off um, and become, you know, what it is today. So, you know, I I hope that was clear enough. It's not a it's not a very complex mm -hmm. narrative. It's a, it's actually quite simple uh, and vague, which you know, given the number discrepancy. Uh, but you know, that itself I think should send you know people sort of that should make people worry. <laughs> right. Right. Okay. Tell us more about the South uh, and, and why such a notion of a black Confederate or black Confederate soldier is so preposterous to you. Like we know now where it came from, yeah. its origins, but, but why is it, yeah. you know, why, why is it so preposterous? Right. It's a great question. It's, it's, it's preposterous because, because Confederates, white Southerners during the war um, didn't hide what they were fighting for. <laughs> They never once, you know, hid the fact that they were fighting for white supremacy and the institution mm. of slavery. The vice president in early 1861, um, you know, stated publicly that it was the cornerstone of their new government. Uh, and right through the, the end of the war, um, you know, again, Confederates are very clear that they are defending slavery. And this becomes even more of, of an issue after 1863 and emancipation. You know, once the Emancipation Proclamation is issued, you know, by the Lincoln administration, um, it becomes even clearer, I think, to Confederates uh, that of what's at stake if they lose the war. Right. It's 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 not something abstract. It is everything they fear going back decades before the war regarding slave insurrections, the mixing of the races. Um, so right up until the very end of the war, Confederates understand um, what they are fighting for. They, this is not to minimize, you know, the broad range of factors that motivate soldiers to join and remain uh, in Confederate armies. Um, that, of course, scholars have written quite a bit about over the last uh, over the last two de two decades. But slavery certainly would have been uh, front and center. And you know, my first book um, was about the Battle of the Crater. In, in Petersburg, Virginia, on July 30th, 1864. This is the battle 
uh, where the Union Army, in an attempt to punch through Confederate defenders of Petersburg, uh, detonate roughly 8,000 pounds of explosives under a Confederate salient, break the Confederate line. Hopefully, uh, you know, you can take the city of Petersburg and perhaps even end the war. The One of the divisions that took part was an entirely black division, Union division. And if you read the letters and diaries of Confederates, you know, after the battle, it was a Confederate victory. They're very open about uh, having murdered many of these men after they surrendered or um, sending them back into slavery if they were allowed, if they if, if they were allowed to remain prisoners. Um, they write very clearly about the threat they perceived on that battlefield, uh, that these black uniformed men carrying weapons represented to them and their families back home. Um, so, you know, it's, it's the black Confederate myth. You know, it, it is a crazy idea. Um, and it's and it's 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 a it's a crazy idea because we actually know what Confederates, them, what real Confederates thought of African-Americans. <laughs> they did not shy away from it. Right. And, and that's where, again, when we talk about going back to primary and secondary sources, monographs, things of yeah. that nature that give us insight into the past, you just you can't allow people to to give information out and not check them on where does this information come from? Take me to the sources right. because we can read and we can see for ourselves the ideas of people, what they stood for, you know, et cetera. And, and, yeah. and so even when, you know, you have those who, who have created this uh, cultural norm of the perception of Abraham Lincoln, you know, this, yeah. this fun loving, uh, uh, black loving person <laughs> who would have, you know, allowed them to marry into his family and would have cooked right. them a, a home cooked meal. When you when you read his writings, we find out that it was nowhere near the truth, and right. uh, and and that he he makes the statement that you know there has to be a superior inferior race in America, and and, and to his opinion, he believes that it should be the whites that are superior. And if he could if he could end the war without freeing one slave or enslaved person, yep. he would have done it. You know, so yep, again, right. you know, going back to the the documents, that's where we find the the information. And so when we challenge and, and give pushback about this concept of the black Confederate soldier, the question is where, where's the evidence? Where are, are the writings that, you know, purport this, this stance and this idea? We don't see it. Well, no, you don't. And in find, you know, what, what, what I find so fascinating from, by, you know, in dealing with people who, who push this, this nonsense is that, you know, look, I've been researching this for, for about 10 years and writing about it on my blog and, and elsewhere for 10 years and now in this book, you know, that, again, from the beginning of 1864 until the end of the war, Confederates debated this. You can, you can spend the next couple years reading editorial after editorial, letter after letter from people in the Army on the home front who are engaged in this debate. And with everything I've read over the course of my research, I have yet to find a single reference from a soldier in the army, from, from a newspaper editor, Confederate politician in Richmond, regardless of their position on the enlistment of, of African-Americans as soldiers, I have yet to find a single reference, anyone who has said, by the way, there are already black people serving as soldiers in the Confederate army. Not one. No one seems mm. to be aware that there are black people fighting in the Confederate army before <laughs> March 1865. And the reason they're not is because they weren't. <laughs> we can take them at their word. 
or they're or they're right. or they're silenced, if you will. <laughs> I've got a pushback question. Uh, oh yeah. You, and, and so and so my audience, you know, they they want to hear both sides of this thing. And so, <laughs> can your can your refutation of black Confederate soldiers be seen by some? And and, and if it is seen by some, I'd like to know your response. But can your refutation of black Confederate soldiers be seen by some as a robbery of African-American people's accomplishments, their loyalty and their service, regardless if it was misplaced or not? That's that's actually a wonderful question. Um, And what's interesting about that question is there are a small number of African-Americans, very vocal, but relatively small, who have embraced this narrative. And some of them are descendants of former camp slaves who, for one reason or another, um, you know, believe that they were, uh, they in fact served as soldiers. Some of them have aligned themselves with the Sons of Confederate Veterans. And I think actually, you know, I think it it, it takes some effort, but I think it's important to, to sort of, to try to find a way to appreciate how people, you know, come to this, this narrative. I think for some African-Americans, um, I, I think there is what they find attractive is it's not a story about enslaved people. My ancestor, they can argue, was not enslaved. He, in fact, was a soldier. He was brave. He saw the battlefield. Uh, he went on a great adventure. That, that I think, for some people is much more attractive, um, you know, than sort of the the you know the more common story uh, of of an ancestor being enslaved. Um, there is a Harvard scholar, you know, Henry Louis Gates, who has over the years pushed this narrative. And I, you know, I deal with him in the book as well. And at one point mm. he says that, you know, you know, people who deny that black people could have been soldiers in the Confederate army uh, are denying the complexity of African-Americans themselves. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I think all of that is interesting. Right. And, you know, if people want to make that charge, um, that's fine. I think they, 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 they are free to do so. My response to that is, is, look, I can only go where the evidence takes me. Um, you know, I'm a historian. I was trained in analysis, trained in how to, how to search for and assess, you know, the relevant primary sources. I think I've done that. That doesn't mean, of course, that, you know, my word is the last word. If someone else, um, you know, arrives at a different conclusion, I am more than willing to hear them out. And have a discussion on the level of analysis, not wishful thinking, right? So, right. so that's my response to that. But I think it's a really good question because I think it actually does, it does sort of um, raise, I think, the many reasons why people are interested in history, um, and 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 sort of the many factors that can steer us in different directions in regard to that history, how we embrace it, how we consume it. And why? Mm. Mm. So, as I always say to, to to people, you know, you can come with any position that you, you want to come with, but at the end of the day, if we're going to be historians, at at the end of the day, if we're going to be scholars, then there has to be uh, a preponderance of evidence, and you, you're going to have right. to bring it to the table. You, you you're not going to. You know, very few court cases are won by saying, well, I think my client is innocent or I think the defendant is guilty. You know, we've got to have some information. I think that's right. I think in regard to the Civil War and Reconstruction, that's especially the case because, you know, this period in American history has for so long 
um, you know, been shaped by myth. Um, and, and, and that has had a damaging impact, um, you know, on the present. The, how we understand the past is, is very much tied to how we see one another today. And we have an obligation to get that, that story right as best we can. I want you to explain the facts to us. Black <laughs> people were there, right? So oh, yeah. if they weren't black Confederate soldiers, what were they doing? That's right. What were they doing? Well, I mean, keep in mind that the population of the Confederacy is roughly 9 million in, in 1860, 1861. Um, somewhere around 4 million are enslaved. There's a small population of, of free blacks. Um, we haven't talked much about them. Uh, they, of course, have, you know, very tough decisions to make in places like Petersburg, Virginia, uh, in places like New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, because some of these communities, of course, um, you know, the people who lived in these communities did amass a certain amount of wealth. They did enjoy uh, some success. And the question for them, of course, is, you know, how do you how do you negotiate with this new government? How do you balance, on the one hand, living in a government now, uh, a, a nation that is pledged to keep um, African-Americans enslaved? And at the same time, how do you how do you maintain your position? your place uh, in society. And we find that in 1861, there are some free black communities that do offer their service to the Confederacy in whatever way they can. Some of them offer to raise uh, regiments uh, even early in the war. Uh, those, those offers are of course um, rebuffed by, by the Confederacy for the obvious, the obvious reason. But of course the vast majority were enslaved. And as I mentioned, um, you know, many of them remain on the plantations or where they are uh, confined to until the Union Army um, makes its way you know, to their region. Um, many, of course, uh, along the Mississippi River in the Black Belt of uh, the Deep South, um, you know, they see the Union Army uh, in a spring, summer 1862, after emancipation or the proclamation in 63, those Union armies are now liberating armies. Anyone they come into contact with are, of course, as a result of the proclamation, uh, freed. Um, and of course, you know, many of them were impressed by the Confederacy, again, to perform various roles uh, in support of the war effort. So, you know, it's a, it's a complex story. You know, it is, a, it is one that I think historians are beginning uh, to come to, to, to grips with, the way in which the war upends, um, you know, black society, slave societies, uh, communities during the war itself. There's some wonderful stuff now on scholarship on contraband camps where thousands of, of uh, former slaves end up. Um, you know, we're now sort of uh, able, you know, we used to think of, you know, that narrative from slavery to freedom, looking closely at contraband camps, it's much messier. It's much, it's much more complex than simply a narrative of from slavery the freedom, a lot of unknown, a lot of the violence that African Americans experience in those places. Um, so, I mean, it, it's a you've asked a very broad question in terms of what um, um, you know, what enslaved people, what what Black Southerners are trying to do in the South. I would suggest uh, trying to survive, trying to figure out how to um, how to continue, how to keep their families together, um, and how to survive. How to navigate this new world. That's been forced yes. upon them, right? Yeah. That's right. And that's, what, and that, and, yep, go ahead. Sorry. 
I was going to say one that many one that many of them had hoped for in one way, but didn't realize the complexity of how that would manifest in their time. That's right. And I think yeah. that's a good point because no one really knows how it's going to, what freedom is going to look like, whether there even will be freedom, say, in 1862. Right. The war could have ended with, with slavery still intact uh, before the end of 1862. And, and of course, once you, once you recruit black men uh, you know, into the Union Army, once they play a role in saving the Union and ending slavery and upending um, Southern society, what is that new society going to look like? And of course, that is the challenge of Reconstruction um, and moving forward. And I think, you know, we are, we are certainly 150 years later still dealing with its, with its, uh, its consequences. And still trying to figure it out. <laughs> absolutely. No, um, absolutely. So, all right. So another pushback question, why is this even an issue? I mean, who does it hurt to just let people have their black Confederate soldiers? Like, is it hurting anybody? Why, why, why do we have to, to, to take away, you know, the black Confederate soldier narrative from people? You know, why is this an issue? Yeah. You know, I think it's an issue if you ever, if you if you ever stand in front of a Confederate monument on a courthouse square, you know, if you're looking at a Confederate monument, you know, if you're looking at either that, that sort of um, pervasive soldier statue or something more, you know, dramatic, if you're looking at it, if you're you know, sitting, standing in Arlington National Cemetery and looking at the, the, the monument that was put up in 1914 that depicts the loyal mammy taking, um, a white baby from a Confederate officer who's going to war. Um, that if you're, if, if just think about monuments for a moment and think about the work that those monuments did during the Jim Crow era to define for an entire region and for the country as a whole, who counts as an American? Who's a full citizen? If your monuments tell you that African Americans were loyal to the Confederacy, that they wanted to be, that they fought for to maintain a slaveholding society, that they remained loyal to their masters and the Confederacy throughout the war, then why should we have to worry about civil rights? Why should we have to worry about their place in a reconstructed United States? So what I'm suggesting mm. is that this, this history, this narrative matters to how, again, how we see one another today, whether we see one another as equals. I think this history is powerful. I think it's always, it's always packed a punch. And I think only in the last few decades, you know, have we, have we gotten to a point where African Americans themselves have had a, a voice in how this story is told, right? One of the reasons I think why, why people are, why white Americans uh, for the most part, are holding on to these black Confederate narratives is because they're holding on to a time in which they controlled the communities in mm. which they lived, right? And, mm. you know, it's um, the hell of a thing when you lose that control. And I think, you know, especially since 2015, um, you know, the, the murders in Charleston, the, the uh, white nationalist rally in my former home of Charlottesville, um, I think what we're seeing is a reckoning with the past. I think what we're seeing is, you know, Americans, black and white, you know, saying that these monuments no longer represent who we take ourselves to be. The history that they enshrined, 
you know, whether it was dedicated in 1890 or 1920 or 1940, no longer represents us. That we are, that, that our communities um, embody different values. Um, and I think mm. making sure that we have, you know, an honest, you know, an honest narrative, an, an honest historical, that we embrace an honest historical narrative um, is part of what it takes to, you know, reimagine society today and race relations today. Mm. Coming towards our end, what what can we do to be more educated on the subject? Where where should we go? Yeah, I think I think first, um, you know, and plug <laughs> and plug and plug your hope, book. Yeah, I was just plug your book. I plug my book. I mean, the book will be out on <laughs> September 9th um, with the University of North Carolina Press. Uh, I think that you know we should be you know we we should think about where we are getting our information from both in print form, making sure that we're not, you know, that we're, you know, we're, we're reading, you know, not just scholarly material from university or academic presses, but reputable presses uh, from people who are, you know, either trained in the field, not necessarily professors, but people who have a track record of, of, um, of solid work, solid scholarship. Uh, obviously online, I think we want to be very weary of, or I should be cautious of, of again, how we are assessing you know, information gathered online. We're not just sort of clicking on the top link on a Google search page that we are actually thinking about what we're looking at. Where's the information from? Who wrote it? Can you trace back the, uh, the information provided on a web page to a source, a reputable source? Um, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, because I think, you know, that's where we're now, that's where we are. We are at a time when everyone has access to information and everyone has the ability to add to that information. And, you know, look, no one, I, I imagine, I, I say this to my students, I ask them, you know, if you had a question, would you walk down the street and ask the first stranger you meet the question and then accept whatever he or she says in response? And of course the answer is no, that would be stupid. But that's in fact what we're doing all the time when we're online. And so I hope, mm. I, I hope we can sort of, at least take a slightly more cautious approach um, in that regard. So give us the full title of, of the book and yeah. uh, so that people can go and get their hands on it. Yeah, it's, it's called Searching for Black Confederates, and the subtitle is The Civil War's Most Persistent Myth. By? Kevin Levin, and the publisher is the University of North Carolina Press. Okay, so um, as we come to the end of our show, what are your final thoughts and words to the audience, um, what's your call to action? Read as much history as possible. Um, you know, think about it in the light of what's happening today. Um, talk to people, read widely, um, and be good to one another. <laughs> that's great. Great that's ending. I think I can think off the top of my head. Sorry. <laughs> great, great ending. Thank you, Mr. Levin. Um, thank you my so pleasure. much for. Um, being a part of the show today. This was a much needed, uh, I think it's an, an eye-opening discussion that many people haven't taken the time to think about. You know, when I mention it to yeah. to folk, um, you know, a lot of times they're like, really? No, no Confederate soldiers? Um, you know, and so I think that this is something that makes us say, wow, we need to really go back and read a little bit more because some things we probably have taken on face value. And so Mm -hmm. um, this is a really good show. I appreciate you uh, being able to take that time with us today. And I want to tell our audience to, to go out and check out Mr. Levin's um, 
you know, uh, a book, and also give us your website where they can read some of your blog writings. Yeah, so it's uh, the blog is Civil War Memory, and it, and you can find it at cwmemory.com. All right. Well, we thank you so much for being with us today, and for those of, from those of us at Leading by History, we say to you, peace. Thanks for tuning in to this week's Leading by History podcast, and we look forward to getting back together with you again on our next show. Until then, peace.